Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. Welcome to the third episode of Measure Mentality. This series is sponsored by and in collaboration with IEEE Standards Association, a collaborative organization where innovators raise the world's standards for technology. IEEE SA enables the collaborative exploration of emerging technologies, the identification of challenges and opportunities, and the development of recommendations, solutions, and technology standards that solve market-relevant problems. If you're new to Measure Mentality, in this series, we interrogate the metrics of success in artificial intelligence by asking our expert guests a series of three questions. First, how is success measured today in AI? Second, what positive future can we envision with AI? And finally, what measures of success can get us to that positive future? In this episode, we interview Rianne Eisler and Amandeep Gill to explore how we can best measure success for counting mental health and caregiving in artificial intelligence. Rianne Eisler is president of the Center for Partnership Systems and editor-in-chief of the Interdisciplinary Journal of Partnership Studies at the University of Minnesota. Rianne is the author of numerous books, including Nurturing Our Humanity, How Domination and Partnership Shape Our Brains, Lives, and Future, and The Chalice and the Blade, our history, our future. Ambassador Amandeep Gill is director of the Global Health Center Project on International Digital Health and AI Research Collaborative, otherwise known as IDARE. He also teaches the interdisciplinary master's course at the Graduate Institute of Geneva on technology, security, politics, and norms. Amandeep was also the executive director and co-lead of the Secretariat of the UN Secretary General's High-Level Panel on Digital Cooperation until August of 2019. And now, it's our pleasure to share this interview with Amandeep and Rian with all of you. So we are on the line today with Rian and Amandeep. How are you both doing today? Fine, thank you. Very well. It's good to be on this call with you. Uh, it's great to talk to you both. And we're just going to dive right in and ask our first question. And uh, Rian, let's start with you. How do you believe success is measured today in artificial intelligence systems? Well, it is basically whether it is measuring reach or measuring access, uh, it's basically measured in terms of profit, in terms of how much money somebody is going to make off it. And I think that that is not a very healthy way to measure anything. Very succinct. And uh, Amandeep, what do you think about how AI is uh, AI success is measured today? I would uh, agree uh, with Rian and just add that uh, uh, somewhat episodically, the success is also measured by the coolness factor. So how new disruptive or complex the AI is. Uh, take the uh, example of the AI that defeated the Go champion, uh, Lee Sedol. So in addition to revenue and scale, we have this um, uh, other success factor that catches attention today. 
I'm uh, curious to hear more about this, the, the coolness factor. Um, Rianne, do you see a similar phenomenon happening um, out in the world about artificial intelligence systems? Well, I, I think that uh, the entire uh, spectrum of uh, the internet uh, has become kind of a wild west, really. And um, I think that it's very urgent that we re-examine. Uh, we had so much hope for it, you know, that it would be a way for people. And indeed, I mean, we can now, you don't have to be a mega corporation in order to have a website or to do anything. But uh, it is still very much uh, controlled by the existing rules. And much of my work has been, uh, my books, The Real Wealth of Nations, for example, has been to really propose different rules, healthier ones. Well, on that train of thought, speaking of health, our topic and our theme for today's episode is about counting mental health and caregiving in artificial intelligence systems. So let's move on to the next question, which is what is the positive future you are working to build with artificial intelligence systems? And Amandeep, why don't we start with you? Yes, and uh, th this positive future firstly has to be about a far more diverse group of people doing AI than what we see today. Uh, in fact, this future is led by those whose problems AI is purportedly trying to solve, the so-called problem owners who get to own up the solutions as well. And I would argue that this diversity is not only morally the right thing to do, but it's also a guarantee against runaway risks and misuse. It is also about a more equitable world than what we uh, see today. The second part of this future is about the collaborative development of AI. Uh, in particular, you know, its enablers, uh, connectivity, computing, benchmarks, governance, etc. So people doing AI together collaboratively across domains, across borders, and not just in very narrow silos or commercial boxes. If I, may, uh, if I may add on the health side, I think since uh, Jess, you spoke about health and well-being, uh, I think this future is about data and AI uh, for health transforming into an asset for the public good rather than hoarding data or thinking about data as a new oil. Uh, we look at a future where data is used collaboratively, it is shared in full respect of privacy, personal agency, uh, and uh, it is used to derive public value. Amandeep, what do you see as maybe the barriers towards artificial intelligence systems or people who are developing or deploying those systems in including well-being in some of their design and implementation? The biggest barrier is the lack of governance frameworks and benchmarks. How do you know that something works? Obviously, there are these technical benchmarks, uh, you know, the area under the curve, the various technical attributes that we know how to measure. Uh, but how does something really impact health and well-being? We still have some way to go there. 
and how do you govern uh, data use um, in ways that uh, protects privacy, personal agency. Again, we have a, a long way to go there. The second uh, missing piece today is simply interoperable data or data that's not collected at all on births and deaths across um, big parts of the world or data related to our mental health and well-being, which is, you know, I mean, some of the questionnaires used today are uh, a legacy from the past and they really don't work today. We don't have the kind of data that you need to develop sophisticated, thoughtful AI systems. And Brian, what do you see on your end with the work that you're doing in terms of data or otherwise? How are you working to build a positive future with artificial intelligence systems? Well, uh, as I said, uh, I think that the issue of, with AI as with any other of these breakthrough technologies is not the technology per se, but the surrounding economic and social and cultural system. And that's what my work has been directed to, uh, to return to some of what uh, Indra uh, Amadeep was saying. Um, I, I agree that diversity, collaboration are very important, but again, the real and benchmarks are essential. And but the question is what kinds of benchmarks? And so to answer your question, Jesse, uh, we have been working at the Center for Partnership Systems on a new set of indicators, what we call the Social Wealth Index, uh, which really uh, is so very different in its premises. It starts with the premise that we have inherited rules of the game, uh, whether they're capitalist or socialist, that fail to include as productive work, the work of caring for people, starting at birth, and caring for our natural life support systems. So once you start from the premise that this is what economic systems should be guided by, then you also come to the conclusion, of course, that when you program AI, you want to have data. Uh, Amadeep, Amadeep mentioned uh, missing data. And I would say that there are lacunae of data that are missing in the present approach uh, that are related to the care work in households uh, that uh, is not counted uh, by conventional economic measures like GDP. Uh, the idea of caring for nature uh, is beginning to creep in, but through a side door only, rather than being central to what we measure. Uh, to make a long story short, uh, in 2014, uh, with a grant from the Kellogg Foundation, we launched 24 social wealth economic indicators. Uh, now we're in the process 
of updating and condensing these indicators uh, into an index so that policymakers in both business and that would include and government, which of course would include AI, have uh, data that uh, they need to make sound allocations of resources. And I will tell you a little more about the social wealth index in a, if you want now or in a few minutes, but it is really very different uh, from either conventional measurements or from most so-called GDP alternatives, because uh, it really does not only measure where we are, uh, the, and, and is very specific. It measures human capacity development, which includes, of course, both physical and mental health, right? Because we don't have that capacity if we don't have that. But it also includes not only the outputs, but also the inputs. What kind of investments do we need in caring for people, caring for nature, that will make for better outputs? And I'm going to stop right here and tell you later. Well, this this concept of, of data and also just measuring social wealth in general is really interesting because one of the critiques in the AI community about measuring success of things that aren't just accuracy is that it's really hard to even know how to measure that. And so they, they aren't critiquing even the missing data, but they're critiquing if we are to gather data on mental well-being and um, on caregiving, is that data even representative of what we're trying to measure and what we're trying to understand? And so I guess what I'm wondering is, based off the work that you've already done, Rian, and feel free to chime in here too, Amandeep, do you think that it's possible to even accurately measure these kinds of metrics to try to optimize for them? Well, we wouldn't be doing this project. We wouldn't be, uh, we wouldn't have a team of top economists right now. Uh, working on this if we didn't think that we can measure it with a caveat. And the caveat, of course, is exactly what Amandeep and you are referring to, to some extent, which is that there are areas in which we have simply not been gathering sufficient data. And so uh, what we will then be showing is where nations or local governments or businesses need to gather data. Um, going in terms of care work, which is of course supporting. You see, I mean, what we're really talking about is changing the values that govern uh, decisions. And if we change that to really value caring for people starting at birth and caring for nature, we are actually uh, developing metrics that are appropriate for our post-industrial era when we are told again and again, even by economists, that our most important capital is what they like to call 
high quality human capital, which we know from neuroscience. This is another difference here, that we are taking into account findings from neuroscience. My most recent book, Nurturing Our Humanity, which came out fairly recently with Oxford University Press, has these enormous amounts of data from neuroscience showing that in essence applied to this, whether or not we have these flexible, creative, resilient people or not, largely hinges on the quality of care and education children receive in the first five years. Think about that. We pay so much attention to higher, so-called higher education, but we know from neuroscience that the foundations have to be laid. So we're talking about a new paradigm that really uh, recognizes that the real wealth, our real wealth, aside from subsistence, consists of the contributions of people and of nature, which is not the way that economic systems have been run. It's always been just uh, um, an attention world. So today we talk about the attention economy, that the digital world is about uh, capturing eyeballs and attention. Uh, so whatever you place your attention on grows. Uh, so if we are not paying attention to the right things, those things shrivel. So from human relationships to our relationship with nature, to how we generate value. So I think uh, the first problem in data is what are we paying attention to? You know, if you're not even looking at the AI talent in India or in Africa, you're not going to find it. Uh, so the missing data problem is also a missing attention problem, missing priorities problem. And then there is the missed use of data. The data is there. So you have decades of supply chain data on uh, health issues, for example, prescriptions and how you buy things at pharmacies, but it's, it's, uh, it's shut off in government data warehouses or in commercials uh, data warehouses. And it's not available to researchers to develop thoughtful AI applications. And then there is the problem of misuse of data. You and I may be willing to contribute data to a research project on long COVID, for example, and just throwing out an example, but we don't trust those who, who would do it. Uh, so there is these three M's of data, but it all boils down to what are we paying attention to? I, I absolutely agree with you, Amandeep. And the whole point of the social wealth economic indicators is to draw attention Number one, to what counts in human and environmental terms, but also to what counts in purely financial and economic terms in this new era. And I would argue that uh, one of our problems, in fact, I do argue <laughs> this, that both socialism and capitalism came out of early industrial times in the 1700s and 1800s. We are now 
in the 21st century post-industrial age, but even beyond that, in terms of the conceptual frame introduced in my work, the partnership domination social scale, this was a time that still oriented more than today to the domination side. So as far as care work went, even as late as when Marx wrote, you know, in the 1800s, in most places, caring for children, caring for the sick, caring for the elderly in homes was supposed to be done for free by a woman in a male-controlled household. So it was invisible. And unfortunately, fast forward to GDP, it is that same myopic domination view that has governed our metrics. Uh, and even in our business and economic schools, people are still taught that that work of caring for people, caring for nature is just reproductive. And you know we are interested only in productive. And I am arguing that by actually that caring for people starting at birth and caring for nature is the most productive work. So we're really talking about redefining what is and is not productive work. Uh, we're talking about a new way of thinking. And I would argue, as Einstein said, that we cannot solve problems with the same thinking that created them. So this is what the work that we're doing that my books are about the real wealth of nations, uh, nurturing our humanity, and what the Center for Partnership Systems, uh, its whole systems change. Amandeep, I would love your uh, thoughts on this tension between this capitalistic world that we're living in and this concept of measuring wellness and health. Um, I know there's an argument out there that you can't do both, like the measurements that we're uh, applying to our economic systems and the success of GDP can't exist in the same world as the metrics as how we're measuring wellness. And I'm curious your take on that tension. Yes, I think that's a useful tension to have at this stage. Uh, and uh, we need to kind of move to the next stage of measuring and metrics. So what we measure, how we measure, so that needs to evolve. Uh, and uh, we can't just throw away our existing metrics because uh, the capitalist economy, uh, the market economy plays a role in terms of efficient allocation of resources and channeling talent to areas where, you know, there are returns to society. It's just that, you know, they, we've had these distortions come in the Milton Friedman notion of shareholder value, what have you. Um, and technology is kind of uh, entrenching some of those distortions. Uh, but at the same time, technology, particularly in emerging geographies of innovation, is an opportunity to rewire the system. So financial inclusion, for example, if uh, you know it didn't make sense for a bank to loan uh, $5 to a woman selling vegetables in India, now with fintech, and with these kind of you know, digital enablers like a universal digital ID, that becomes possible today. Uh, so that's, that's the opportunity in a sense to you know, not just throw away the paradigm, but kind of reinvent it 
re, uh, rejig it. It's this combination of common rails and guardrails that we need going forward and to create more inclusiveness in generating value in the economy and to place more attention on some of these other metrics. Uh, for example, with COVID-19, we've uh, realized how important are resilient health systems. You may, be a, you may be spending a lot of money on health systems, but if they're not delivering, like, you know, if you're still, at the same time, if you are uh, having people eat junk food and not exercise enough or sleep well because they're addicted to digital devices, what have you, yeah, so then what's the point? Uh, you know, are we living joyful lives? I mean, capitalism is supposed to make us free and you know, live joyful lives. Uh, so if it's not happening, then we need to think about it, that you know, revise our ways of looking at what is success, uh, personally, socially, nationally. I mean, there, nationally, you see this kind of a mad competition. Uh, how many, um, uh, uh, let's say, uh, unicorns do I have? You know, it's like uh, how many uh, aircraft carriers or uh, you know, nuclear weapons do I have? You know, it's or how many golf courses can I build of the kind that you see on the west coast of California? Is that how we want to measure success? Or do you want to think about, you know, how joyful we are, how healthy we are, you know, what kind of relationships, what kind of families, uh, you know, do we find love and joy in our daily life or not? I, I would uh, argue uh, Amandeep, that there are things about both capitalism and socialism that we have to leave behind. Uh, I think we need both. If anything, the COVID-19 pandemic showed that we need both markets. We don't happen to have free markets, but we uh, certainly don't have level playing fields. Uh, so we need regulations for that. Uh, so we also need government policies. But I think that there is a lot of the old thinking that we really have to leave behind. And it isn't just a question of integrating uh, traditionally powerless or marginalized groups into the existing system. To use a woman's metaphor, it's not about getting a bigger piece of the existing pie, but baking a better pie. And that's what this work is really about. Um, I, I think that, um, no, we don't want to dismantle everything and create chaos. On the other hand, corporations, they have charters. We can change those charters. Uh, we have government policies. Uh, we are seeing a movement towards more caring policies in the United States right now with President Biden. Uh, but it's piecemeal. There is no frame. And this is where I think that if we think of economics as either top-down economics, you know, whether it is the so-called uh, trickle-down economics of so-called neoliberalism, they're wonderful at inventing these catchy phrases. This is not liberalism. This is domination economics, uh, whether it's a Chinese emperors long ago, or a, an Arab sheik, or a, an Indian pasha. It was you content 
the people on the bottom have to content themselves with the scraps dropping from the opulent tables of those on top. We want a different economic system. And I will argue with you that if we are to address poverty effectively, we must support financially with not nice rhetoric about, oh, how nice that women are doing this care work, but with ways of surviving, that to put food on the table and a roof over people's heads are policies like paid parental leave, like stipends for caregivers, like uh, universal health care, uh, are really uh, essential for both mental and physical health. And I would argue for the kind of economic system that meets the needs of the post-industrial era when human, I mean, so much work is being taken over by uh, automation, by robotics. And what's coming is a lot. We need that these people, we need to invest in human development, in human capacity. And so it's a whole new paradigm is what I'm saying that we need. And we can change the system without chaotically disrupting it. And I really agree with you that this notion, but I also think that it's very important that we stop thinking that we can just simply add on or modify. We have to think of what are the basic operating system. So we've spoken a bit about some of the things that really aren't working right now, and also some of the things that we hope to see in the future, um, and some of the things that both of you are working on building so that we can see in the future. And let's get specific about metrics of success in artificial intelligence systems. So Amandeep, you mentioned earlier that we need to change what we measure and how we measure things, especially moving towards measuring things like joy, health, family happiness. And what specific metrics of success do you see for the positive future of AI that you envision? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think we can look at some specific metrics that are familiar as per today's paradigms. Uh, so for example, growth in the number of AI developers and users in low and middle income countries. So more diverse um, uh, base of developers and users. Another is growth in novel data sets coming from these geographies. So moving from data poverty to data availability, data abundance, uh, where you, know, you don't need uh, feel, to, uh, feel the need for holding data or treating it as a kind of, you know, uh, new gold rush. A third could be meaningful connectivity. You know, half the world is not connected to the internet today. Uh, and so not just being plugged into networks, but also meaningful connectivity uh, as per the definition of the Alliance for an Affordable Internet. And then computing. So here we are talking about low code software, low density hardware for everyone. And then we could also count uh, a fourth metric, which is collaborative research and development and, and in particular publication. So these uh, CERN-like papers with dozens, if not hundreds of researchers listed alphabetically. 
Now, where it gets tricky is measuring personal and relational well-being. So, uh, we in in our kind of intuitive ways in our uh, like you know uh, cultures, uh, we know uh, some of this, but we've kind of you know occulted it in our scientific age. Uh, so, uh, like, I have a personal metric. You know, just by looking at the way people breathe, you can tell a lot about how anxious they are, you know, their emotional state, etc. Uh, but I think we need to. Uh, work together across disciplines to put together these more positive metrics of well-being. Uh, there's been some work that's been uh, done about it uh, on uh, you know, self-integration, on relational well-being, on uh, joyful and healthy living. Uh, so uh, making them count more and more in the future uh, would have to be a collaborative exercise across disciplines. Uh, and we've just started, started on that. Rianne, uh, same question to you, and this might be a perfect opportunity to talk more about the Social Wealth Index. Well, uh, we come at it from a different perspective, as I said. Uh, if we look at the human capacity indicators at the outputs, we're not specifically measuring quality of life because we consider that to be an outcome of the state of human capacity. So what are some of the indicators we want to look at? First of all, we want to look at time spent on unpaid care work. Uh, I would argue that one of the major reasons for the fact that women and children are today internationally, the mass of the world's poor and the poorest of the poor is that it is women who have for, for millennia, really, uh, not always, by the way. Uh, that's one thing we could tell the world the wrong story, but I won't go into that. But over the last five to 10,000 years, have been doing this work for free uh, uh, or for poverty wages more recently in the market. Uh, so in the United States, for example, women over the age of 65 are twice as likely to be poor as men of the same age. And it is really because most of these women are or were either full-time or part-time caregivers working for nothing almost. Uh, enrollment rates in childcare centers, long-term care wages, educational attainment, infant mortality is something that's taken into account of course, in measures of um, uh, well-being, uh, maternal mortality, but things like teen births, incarceration, incarceration and recidivism rates, ecological deficits and reserves, uh, child poverty, and yes, uh, really the amount of equity, racial as well as gender. But then we go to the care investment side, and we're looking how much public spending is there on family benefits. It is not coincidental as we found out, and you can find this report at centerforpartnership.org that uh, the United States invests less than half of what other e uh, developed nations uh, invest in 
family benefits and have the highest child poverty, infant mortality, and, child, and, and, and maternal mortality rates. I mean, there's a relationship here. The uh, percentage of GDP for public funding for childcare and early education, paid family work leave, government investment in long-term care, uh, employer support for child care, uh, public investment in environmental protection. In other words, these are very specific to the issue of uh, do we value or not value caring for people starting, as I said, at birth and caring for our natural life support systems. Uh, if we measure these, which are not being measured, well, I mean, they are, they're beginning to be measured. That's the interesting thing, but they're all marginalized, okay? Rather than being part of the main event. If we measure these, then we have a higher quality of life. Uh, that we have more diversity because we're measuring equity, remember? Uh, racial, ethnic, uh, gender-based, but I would argue that uh, we have had a very distorted way of thinking uh, that devalues anything stereotypically associated with women or the so-called feminine. Uh, so somehow there's always, and it has nothing to do with anything inherent in women or men, by the way, because some men are caring and some women aren't, obviously. Uh, but consider that there always seems to be enough money for prisons. You know, what, what's that? That's the stereotypical dominator, male, punitive male head of household, right? Or for weapons and wars, but somehow there isn't enough money for the so-called soft or feminine, for healthcare, for childcare, for uh, paid parental leave. I mean, these are basic human needs for universal health care, uh, universal uh, help with caring for children. Just think of what the world would be like if we valued this so-called women's work, right? So I'm really saying that rather than thinking of gender as just a women's issue, we have to start thinking of it as a key social issue, uh, leave behind the gender stereotypes so that both women and men can reclaim their full humanity. So women can be assertive and men can be caring without being told that that's not masculine and that's not feminine. And there are trends in that direction. Um, I, I, all I can say is I recommend my books. I recommend that you go to centerforpartnership.org and uh, it is a new way of thinking that has many of the answers to our problems, poverty, uh, climate change, uh, the whole spectrum, but it goes to root causes rather than to symptoms. Hmm. Yeah, I would bring in an example from um, the agriculture food side, so organic food. Uh, I mean, we've seen how um, that has grown over the past 10 years. I mean, supermarket shelves, you know, you see 
uh, more variety and people are shifting, their buying habits are shifting. But it's been some time in the coming. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a shift in consciousness, in societal consciousness. So you can try and push it from the top, you know, government intervention, but then, you know, the vested interests come and capture some of that policymaking regulatory process. Uh, you have, you know, miles of uh, fields, so-called organic fields, just growing one crop. So how sustainable that is, you know, that there's, you know, so some, someone somewhere has distorted that process. So you can do that, or you can try and create a more uh, of a groundswell, of a shift in consciousness. I think that's what I'm kind of advocating. So staying away from the isms, you know, I've seen the excesses of socialism, what, you know, what kind of elitism and what kind of distortions it leads to, shuts out whole sections of society. And I tend to look at economic models and political models together, because, you know, you don't want to end up with a perfect economic model with the worst possible political model where you know freedoms can be uh, compromised, individual initiative can be compromised. So this kind of a societal shift in consciousness and metrics are a great way of engendering that shift. But I think we need to get together, like you know, you have global commissions. The Commission on Sustainable Development actually led to in the in 1972 our common future, led to this shift. The whole research programs were created. The vocabulary shifted. So we need those kind of interventions and not just, you know, this is the Indian perspective, American perspective, because, you know, all of us tend to kind of bring our own political quarrels, our own kind of isms into the equation. So staying away from that more, and, and today AI offers you that possibility. And also digging the roots of this into indigenous cultural concepts, whether it's Tikkun Olam in the Hebrew culture, or, you know, Heishie uh, in, in the Chinese culture, you know, there are kind of these values that we can, traditional values that we can link this shift to, so as to accelerate this shift and keep it safe from some of these kind of, you know, gatekeepers who come and distort the pyramid. They, they'll say all the right things, but then you know, the actions would be very different. Well, I think you've put your finger on the problem of co-option, which is uh, how a domination systems maintain themselves. They simply co-opt uh, ideas and people. And that's why we need a whole different way. Uh, I mean, I, I think what we really need is not just deconstruction, but reconstruction. And that is what this is all about is having different standards, different ways. Uh, and I think of it as reality stood right side up. Because if you really come down to it, uh, we measure what we value and we value what we measure, but current measurements don't uh, measure what we value. You and I are saying we value relationship, we value uh, the earth that makes it possible for us to live. But, but, but they don't. So, um, but I, I think that the fact that we're having this conversation is a sign that we are moving towards new thinking. And that is heartening to me. 
Well, on that note, Ran, thank you so much. And Amandeep, thank you so much, both of you, for the amazing work that you are doing in this space to begin to measure what we value and try to invert some of these systems that have become so entrenched. And unfortunately, unfortunately, we are out of time, but um, thank you so much to the both of you for coming on the show with us today. Well, thank you, Jess and Dylan, and thank you, Amandeep, as well. Thank you for hosting. Thank you for hosting. We again want to thank Rianne and Amandeep for this conversation today. And as always, for the series, we are joined by John C. Havens of the IEEE Standards Association. John, welcome back. Great to be here, Dylan and Jess. Thank you so much. As always, I am honored to be here. And uh, let's, I guess, dive right in from what we heard in this interview, and we'll talk about some of our takeaways. Um, and then also, John, I believe you'll uh, mention a bit more about what IEEE is doing in some of these spaces. Uh, but we're talking about well-being today, which, John, this is something that you've done a lot of work on as well. Um, and maybe could you Talk to us about some of your takeaways from this interview, maybe especially as it has to do with well-being and technology. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. You know, like two of the kindest, wisest people I am honored to know. And thank you guys for, as always, an impeccable interview. Um, I think the thing is, when we were chatting about this before we started the outro, right, we were saying, like, what was the show about in terms of well-being with regards to AI? And it's a perfect question. That's what the entire show is about. That's what your show is about. And what I'm always fascinated with and talking about well-being is I think there's some, understandably, uh, this misnomer that it's separate from everything else. That there's sort of like, well, we'll measure well-being metrics if we, if we get the chance. And it's not a good analogy. There's probably a better one, but I've been using the analogy of like an engine in a car and uh, 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 in AI as well, um, when people say, how do we get rid of the bias of this engine? Or how do we have explainability for the engine? Um, and that's important. But then someone else walks up and says, well, what about the rest of the car? And then kind of the logic here, if I can stretch the metaphor, is that somebody says, well, the car's not important. It's the engine we have to prioritize. Now, if that's not the best metaphor, yeah, work with me because, <laughs> you know, cars aren't my forte. But you kind of get the idea, right? There's this sort of lack of, uh, of measuring things, uh, as Amadeep pointed out, what's not seen and all that. And so I bring that up to say that, first of all, what's interesting is the entire show actually was very much about artificial intelligence in the sense of if AI does not measure the things that Amadeep Rian talked about, then the wonder and beauty of the technology will not be used for these sacred critical things that they must be used for. And so interestingly, you know, um, uh, Amadeep had a couple of examples of like medical technology. Um, and I don't think you mentioned this, but like chatbots and stuff, a lot of basic machine learning, a lot of issues of disclosure and bias and facial recognition concerns. But I bring all this up because a lot of times, ironically, this concerns uh, with things about well-being. And I like to point out, well, what about the wonder and the majesty of the things that we aren't measuring yet? Think of all the innovation and help that AI will bring to those things. 
Yeah, I think this conversation, it, it left me wanting to get more specific about the metrics and then also what we're doing with them, what we can do with them. And I absolutely loved what Amandeep and Rian bring, brought up about the different kinds of metrics that they are beginning to learn how to measure, like happiness and social wealth and uh, joy and health um, and care and caregiving. And I, I wanted to ask, even though we didn't have enough time, I wanted to ask, so what next? What do we do with those? And I was trying to think of an explicit example of how we could utilize a metric like that. And the only one that came to my mind was um, taking this attention economy that Amandeep brought up um, really in a really uh, interesting way during the interview that uh, just how all of our AI right now, we measure success or most of the AI that we have right now in social media, especially we measure success through this attention economy and things like click-through rates. And I was just imagining what kind of platform a social media uh, platform like Facebook would look like if instead of measuring success through something like a click-through rate or through the amount of minutes that they retain users, it was instead measured through something like um, people indicating how much healthier they felt after they had scrolled through their curated personalized news feed or how unhappy people felt that their mental health was if they were doom scroll scrolling or something like that. And so just the idea of like flipping the structure that we think is so uh, normalized in our systems and that it has to be that way and asking and interrogating and saying, no, it actually could be measured in a different way. And we could be measuring things that make us better humans. That, that was an example that was coming to my head. And I think something that I was like searching for at the end of this conversation. One thing that's come in vogue um, in the last however many years has been the phrase putting the human in the loop or putting the human back in the loop. And, you know, sometimes I think we can talk about that as uh, we don't always put our money where our mouth is for that. Like sometimes I think we can say, oh, we're putting the human in the loop. Um, and yet we don't necessarily commit to all of what that means. And I think one thing that I hear Rianne and Amandeep saying is that, no, let's actually refocus all of these different systems back on the people that are being impacted by them. Let's center the human, including, you know, a holistic human, the well-being of, of a human or a family system or whatever that is on, on a much uh, larger scale. And in this conversation and in what we're talking about right now, I keep going back to um, the, the country of Bhutan, um, which has, you know, something called the Gross National Happiness Index, which is uh, something that was created uh, however many years ago, actually it could have been quite a long time ago, um, about not measuring GDP, not measuring necessarily economic growth, although that I'm sure is important to the country as well, uh, but really saying we are going to measure happiness within our nation. And I think that's just such a beautiful system that came into being in the world. And it makes me think, well, if these systems exist, maybe in the democratic world, maybe in uh, psychology, positive psychology, as you're talking, John, like, what is the barrier? Why has it not necessarily trickled down into technology or made that uh, bridge that gap into some of these AI systems? Um, and, and I think that's something that Rianne and Amandeep uh, began to get into. But that's a question that I have going forward in our series as well. It's like, is there something that makes our technological systems different where these other quote unquote answers that we already have, it's it just they don't really permeate? Uh, it's a great question, but the short answer, uh, and I can't speak for all of IEEE or every technologist, but the short answer is no, not at all. I mean, 
First of all, Bhutan is the first country that actually put into place a series of statistical measurements as well as things that reflected cultural norms. They invented the, the term time well spent. <laughs> By the way, as much as I appreciate, I was blanking his name, which he's doing some great work, but time well spent, shockingly, is a pretty strong Buddhist tenant <laughs> as compared to Silicon Valley, not to put him down. Um, and the thing about Bhutan is, the I, f I always forget his name, the, the, the king uh, or the prince at the time, had heard what's called, it's the most famous really speech they got, what's called the Beyond GDP or GDP and Beyond movement started as uh, Bobby Kennedy about a year before he died. Had this beautiful speech where he talked about what is it that we measure and what, what don't we measure. And he said, we know cigarette sales up to the last penny, but we don't know the value of education for our children. And by the value of education, that's where people kind of get huffy and say, well, of course we know the value of education. Then you hear Rian what she said on this show, then why don't we know how to measure it? And this is also why, to go back to your question, Dylan, about why hasn't it uh, you know, been adopted, is um, we're all too busy thinking that we have to do the one thing. You know, it's funny. I don't think you maybe intended this, but maybe it's Dylan. I'm just trained to hear these phrases. You said, put your money where your mouth is. Right. It's almost like when someone says like, OK, let's get down to business. Put your money where your mouth is. I want to hear phrases like put your parenting ahead of your work, which is not really a very cute phrase. It's just a statement. But, you know, like those things that have become in the Western world in English, really those things where it's kind of like almost like I play music. Right. You can almost hear the or you can hear the musicality of conversations. And, you know, like before the show, we're chatting. It's like, how you doing? Good. Well, how's it going? So it's so great. Got to get back to business. Versus what about we're talking business. We're talking business. Hey, my son just came into the room. Right now, when someone's like, well, why would you measure that? And my answer is, why wouldn't you? <laughs> and more importantly, why haven't we? Of course, the phrase that I used earlier, put your money where your mouth is, was not intentional. But I think to your point, John, it gets to the heart of uh, the series of measurementality, which is that in some ways uh, we've been trained to see, you know, to have one language around measurement and around technology and around our values and uh, part of that language might be m money, but in this conversation with Amandeep and with Rianne and in this series, I think we're hearing that there are we have more options for how we can measure these things, uh, including AI and technology. And John, for people who want to continue that journey of imagining more in terms of how to measure, why we measure, uh, what we measure, how can people get more involved with IEEE SA? Well, thank you for asking. They can go to, uh, if you Google IEEE or I and three E's, uh, and the, the word, we invented it, all three of us, measurementality. So the word measurement and ality. So that's the easiest way. You can also go to ethicsinaction.ieee.org. There's links to the show there. And again, my email address, I'm at John C. Havens on Twitter. We have these three questions that you guys are always so kind to ask on the show. Those are open to any of your listeners. We really want to get dozens and dozens of responses to those three questions. And we're putting together a report featuring all the great folks on this show here. So thanks again. 
And of course, we will include all of those links and more as we do for every single episode on today's uh, show notes page, which you can visit on our website at radicalai.org backslash measurementality. You can search for the series, respond to our tweets, and get involved by using the hashtag measurementality on Twitter and other social media sites. If you enjoyed this episode, as always, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Catch our regular episodes every other week on Wednesdays and Measurementality episodes monthly. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod, and as always, stay radical. <laughs>